From the studios of the Mayo Clinic News Network, this is Mayo Clinic Radio, exploring the latest developments in health and medicine and what they mean to you. Welcome, everyone, to Mayo Clinic Radio. I'm Dr. Tom Shive. And I'm Tracy McRae. On this week's program, Fixing a Broken Heart. We'll hear how stem cells taken from your hip bone can be used to repair damage caused by heart disease. Mayo Clinic cardiologist Dr. Otta Bafar joins us to talk about cardiac regeneration, treating heart disease with the body's own stem cells. Also on the program, a new study finds that the quit-smoking drug Varenicline helped smokers otherwise not able to quit. And a juicing trend seems to be sweeping the country. We'll ask a Mayo Clinic dietitian if there's such a thing as too much juice in your diet. All that along with this week's health and medical news right after this. Welcome back to Mayo Clinic Radio. I'm Dr. Tom Shives. And I'm Tracy McRae. Repairing a broken heart. Now, you know, that's a tall order, whether you're giving advice to the lovelorn or treating actual heart disease. Mayo Clinic researchers have been working on new ways to repair damaged hearts using the body's own cells, stem cells. The procedure is called cardiac regeneration, and it takes cells from another part of the body and places them directly into the heart. Amazing. And with us to talk about that is Dr. Ada Bafar, who's a cardiologist, heart specialist at the Mayo Clinic, Rochester, Minnesota. Dr. Bafar, thanks so much for being here. It's a pleasure. Regenerative medicine, that's the buzzword today, isn't it? In layman's terms, what is it, what does it really mean? What are you regenerating? Regenerative medicine really means that we are trying to advance medicine beyond what we can offer our patients today, which is really palliative in nature when we think about cardiovascular disease. And we want to push this field towards a paradigm in which we can genuinely cure heart disease. In other words, we want to stop heart disease in its tracks and reverse it back to what we would call heart health, in other words, normal cardiac function. There are so many people, as we've heard, you know, February being heart month, so many people that have heart disease. Is everyone who has heart disease a possible candidate for this new path of regenerative medicine? I think that regenerative medicine opens a new door in the way we think about cardiovascular disease. And although today we can't offer, obviously, regenerative solutions for everyone with cardiovascular disease, the way that we think about heart disease and the way we approach this disease is fundamentally going to change as we apply regenerative technologies to cardiovascular disease. So in the long term, the answer is yes, we will evolve to a point where we'll have regenerative solutions for all heart patients. But at this point in time, we're really focusing on big disease profiles such as heart failure as a result of a heart attack or heart failure as a result of valvular disease rather than trying to address everyone's issues. You know, there's one organ in the body, the liver, that can regenerate itself. It can make new liver cells. The heart can't do that. So what you are trying to do is make it so the heart can do that. So if there is damaged muscle from a, a prior heart attack or some sort of muscle disease not necessarily related to heart attack, you want the heart muscle to be able to repair itself and make new cells. So this is a very interesting question you ask. In the last two decades, as the concept of stem cells was proposed and then tested, we've actually come to find 
that even the heart has stem cells that regenerate new cardiac tissue. In other words, when you have small injuries, almost, uh, let's say you go for a marathon run and you get injury just as, uh, as a physiological form of stress, you do have the heart repair itself. Not only does it repair itself, it becomes stronger. The more you exercise, the more viable it becomes, the more you can do. So that's homeostasis and that's uh, natural regeneration. But when you sustain massive injuries, such as a heart attack or such as uh, severe pressure from valve disease or viruses, suddenly you go from the state of natural healing to a state of pathological remodeling. That means you have this invasive malignant scar that just invades the whole heart. Because it happens immediately when you have a heart attack. It happens right away. It's not a over-the-course-of-time type of thing. So in the setting of heart attack, you have an immediate insult. And when you have this insult, really it depends on how your immune system and body responds to this insult. Mm -hmm. Sometimes we have heart attack patients that come in. We put a stent in. They go home. We never hear from them again. They've had their own body was able to regenerate that area. But... A lot of patients do sustain this injury, and their response to that injury is indeed very bad. And so they go down the road of needing medication after medication, devices, or even transplant. So when you inject these stem cells into the heart, the stem cells have the ability to to basically turn into any kind of cell that's, that's required or needed. In this case, you want the stem cells to make or replace damaged heart muscle. So when we first started using stem cells uh, in the late 90s, early 2000s, that was exactly the notion, was that stem cells have the capacity to become these new cells. And so let's put them in the heart and see if they can become these new cells. After a decade and a half of research, we found that that's completely untrue. Really? It's untrue. Uh, And... uh, when we put the stem cells, in particular the ones that we've developed here at Mayo, into the heart, out of the entire regenerative effect that we see, maybe 1% to 3% come from the cells we put in. What these cells do is that they go into very particular areas of the heart, around the blood vessels of the heart. It's called the perivascular stem cell niche. Long phrase <laughs> means the area around the blood vessels. And there they create these... It's almost like Grand Central Station. They create these signaling hubs, homing signals that tell a lot of the other cardiac stem cells to come in. And there they start this regenerative effort where you create these new vascular buds out of these bigger blood vessels and you start attacking the scars. The scars start getting attacked and as the vascular buds go out, you get little tiny cardiomyocytes that follow and root. And so you can actually in large animal models see over time that you get these rings of regeneration invading back into where the scar was. The scarred tissue. So it builds new vessels through the scarred tissue? So it builds new microvasculature into the scar and then it builds new cardiomyocytes that invade into the scar and regenerates the heart that way. Amazing. And how much you've learned in a decade isn't truly incredible, huh? Yeah. So some surprises there. 
big surprise. I mean, when we realized that this was more of a paracrine rather than a direct effect, that was a huge surprise. We're talking with Mayo cardiologist Dr. Ada Bafar about how stem cells are being used to treat heart disease. When we come back, we'll talk more about the procedure itself, the success rate, the side effects, and where we are today. Dr. Ada Bafar, we're back right after this. Welcome back to Mayo Clinic Radio. I'm Dr. Tom Shai. And I'm Tracy McCray. Our guest, Dr. Ada Bafar, a cardiologist and working on regenerative medicine, how to repair the heart with stem cells. So, Dr. Bafar, you've told us a little bit about the procedure and how it works and what you've learned in the past 10 or 15 years. So, where do you get the stem cells? Uh, you said you had developed stem cells in your lab, but I thought they came from other humans or your own stem cells. You indeed get stem cells from the patient's own body, or you can get them from donated sources. The vast majority of our effort right now is focused on the bone marrow, different stem cells out of the bone marrow. So the patient's own bone marrow. The patient's own bone marrow, um, or it could be donor bone marrow. Um, Our effort here at Mayo Clinic is really focused on autologous or self uh, bone marrow sources, but uh, efforts around the country also use aloe or other person's uh, uh, bone marrow as well. We've heard in the past that um, you take the stem cell and you teach it to become a heart stem cell or to become a whatever stem cell. And I think for the layperson, that's really a little bit science fiction of how do you make a cell, a cell decide to be a heart cell? How do you manipulate the stem cells? So, so there's a little training involved here. So you get that out of the marrow. What do you do? You put a, a large bore needle into the patient's marrow somewhere and pull out some some cells from the marrow. Is that how it starts? That's how it starts. So just as um, most other procedures in hematology, harvest bone marrow, or even orthopedics, um, we here utilize the same tools, the trocars or these large bore needles, to get bone marrow aspirates. Uh, we take that into what we call a GMP processing facility. This is where you can have absolute cleanliness. There's no uh, particles in the air. And there we isolate a particular stem cell called the mesenchymal stem cell. These are um, rare stem cells in the bone marrow, but really make up the biggest regenerative force in the human body. The trouble is that mesenchymal stem cells uh, in patients with heart failure, stop working. They lose their capacity to regenerate. They're stuck being stem cells, and they can't actually make anything or secrete the right stuff. So what we do is we put them through a boot camp training protocol, <laughs> if you will. Come uh, on, stem cells. <laughs> exactly. Give me ten. Yeah. <laughs> and, and what we found is that As patients get older, and in particular when they get sick with heart disease, which really is a systemic disease, when the pump doesn't work, uh, all of the organs start, you know, functioning poorly, as do the stem cells. And so what these cells need is if you give them directly, they just won't regenerate. And there's been several studies, including some from our group, that have shown that only 5% of heart failure patients' stem cells actually still regenerate. So that leaves 95% of patients. If we put them through this boot camp, if you will, which is really putting them into an environment that is youthful, 
In other words, we give them the signals that they would see, let's say, during natural development um, in the embryo. So if we give them those proteins um, before we put them back into the patient's body, suddenly they wake up and suddenly they're able to secrete all of those things. They're able to create the Grand Central Station and they forge ahead and really regenerate the myocardium. How long does the training take? So it depends on the patient. It depends on the age of the patient. Younger patients, typically by four weeks, we have them retrained. And in enough number, we need a billion cells almost. So we have a billion cells and they're ready to go. Older patients, we typically need up to six weeks to get them to grow uh, in large enough quantities uh, to get the therapeutic. And, and how do you know when you're there? I mean, how do you know when these cells are trained and ready to do what you want them to do? So this is a, this was a big issue to really have what we call release criteria. How do we <laughs> finally release these cells for showtime? Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and what we found is that there are particular markers that the cells start to express, and they express them in a particular location. These are the same markers that a brand new heart in an embryo starts to express when you start getting the beating and the formation of cardiomyocytes. These are called cardiac transcription factors. And the stem cells, once they've gone through the reconditioning process, express these same proteins, and the proteins go into the nucleus of the cell. That's where the cell keeps its DNA. It goes into that part of the cell and tells the cell, okay, wake up and start working well. So how do you do this procedure? You've got these stem cells. You say they're ready to go. You've taken them them out of the uh, patient's bone marrow somewhere in their body. Uh, How do you get them to where you want them? And does it require surgery or anesthesia? So we use a non-open procedure, but it is an invasive procedure, obviously, to get these cells to the heart. Uh, what we do is uh, we use a procedure called a percutaneous approach, very similar to what an angiogram would be like. In other words, we gain arterial access like you do with an angiogram. So you uh, actually put a needle or a catheter into an artery, either the wrist or down in the groin? Typically the groin because uh, the delivery catheters are a little bigger than what w- the wrist would accommodate. But, yeah, it would be a needle uh, into the femoral artery in the groin, and then we use a stem cell delivery catheter, which goes through the aortic valve into the pumping chamber of the heart and is able to actually instill these cells right into the muscle of the heart. And this, so the heart is still beating while you're doing this? Absolutely. The heart is still beating. We do use light sedation, much like we do with angiograms, but this procedure doesn't require intubation or general anesthesia. We typically do it under ultrasound. Uh, sometimes we do a procedure called electrical mechanical mapping. In other words, we look at where the scar is using the electrical uh, fields in the heart. And we also use x-ray so that we know exactly where we're going in real time. And how often have you done this? Uh, so I personally have done several of these procedures over the last several years just because of the fact that we develop these catheters and then we... Uh, go ahead and test them. Um, at Mayo, are, the pati- are the patients people who are being just, they know that they're part of a test? or how, Is that what's happening? Yeah, so this is all in the setting of trials. Um, stem cells are still uh, being tested. We aren't certain of their efficacy, and we 
have to do stepwise trial evaluation. And so in order to have patients enroll in these trials, we really need to make sure that they're consented, that they are aware of the risks of the procedure and potential side effects of the procedure. And is it working? What's the what's your success been? So we completed a phase two trial. Uh, phase two trial is a study that really looks at the safety profile of your therapy, and that tested the safety of the delivery procedure and the cells themselves. Um, it was found to be essentially identical to not using therapy in terms of safety, so it was safe. And we did see uh, a benefit in this initial trial of 7%. This is a a benefit uh, on ejection fraction. In other words, normal ejection fractions anywhere between 50 and 70%. Typically, patients that fall into congestive heart failure are at 35%. And so that was the population we looked at, patients with no options. It's basically a measure of how how effective the heart is pumping. It's essentially a measure of how uh, effectively the pump, or the heart is pumping, indeed. And uh, and we saw a 7% improvement in ejection fraction. And another measure that we often use in heart failure is the six-minute walk test. How far can you go in six minutes? And patients with these stem cells could go a football field length further versus the ones that didn't receive the therapy. So it sounds like you're having some early success, no question about it. Uh, How many patients total have been done at Mayo? Um, So this therapy was done in Europe, and we are just about to launch it here at Mayo Clinic. We've uh, tested a few uh, other stem cells uh, here at Mayo um, that are unguided, and now we're just uh, starting a Phase three trial here to really prove the efficacy of this therapy. With one question, of course, is, is it effective? The second question is, are there some side effects? Have there been any adverse events related to this treatment? Uh, primarily, the adverse events are uh, around the procedure. In other words, you may get some arrhythmias uh, with the injections, um, but those are typically self-limited, and we haven't really seen any significant adverse events related to the cells. Truly exciting stuff. Dr. Adabafar, thanks so much for being with us. It's a pleasure. Still to come on Mayo Clinic Radio, a new study finds Veraclean can help smokers quit when other approaches fail. And drinking fruit and vegetable juice can be a great way to get vitamins and minerals, but has juicing gone too far? We'll get some advice from Mayo Clinic dietitian Kate Zaratsky. As we've been saying, February is American Heart Month. If you have any heart-related questions or questions about health, tweet us at hashtag Mayo Clinic Radio. Coming up, the latest health and medical news from Vivian Williams. You're listening to Mayo Clinic Radio. Radio on the Mayo Clinic News Network. Hi, I'm Vivian Williams with headlines from the Mayo Clinic News Network. Ovarian cancer, it can be deadly, especially in certain forms. Now, researchers at the Wistar Institute have found a new therapeutic target in a really aggressive form of ovarian cancer, opening doors to what could be the first effective targeted therapy of its kind for the disease. The new treatment may lead to the first ever successful targeted approach, meaning they use a person's genes to tailor treatment that's best for them. They say the study highlights the success of teamwork and the promise of targeted therapies. And this was in the journal Nature Medicine.
And now here's a story for you. It's a medical story, a science and technology advancement, and a romance wrapped into one. A blind man sees his wife for the first time in a decade. He had an untreatable condition called retinitis pigmentosa and was blind. He was the first human ever to use a bionic eye. Doctors at Mayo Clinic implanted the device, which sends light wave signals to the optic nerve, bypassing the damaged retina. Here's Dr. Raymond Aizi. I would like to see this technology extended to patients who've lost their eyes. We have soldiers who've had terrible trauma and have lost their sight. Uh, we have diabetic patients who've lost both, both of their eyes due to their advanced disease. I think we're going to see that happen in our lifetime. And now, getting a good night's sleep, not always easy. A new study in JAMA Internal Medicine shows mindfulness meditation practices may improve sleep quality for older adults with moderate sleep issues compared to just trying to improve sleep habits by doing things like making bedtime a routine. The researchers say more studies need to be done, but it appears mindful meditation helps reduce sleep problems and related issues in older adults. And that's a look at Headlines from the Mayo Clinic News Network, I'm Vivian Williams. A study released earlier this week had some good news for smokers who are looking to quit. The study, published in the Journal of the American Medical Association, found that for people who wanted to quit smoking but didn't necessarily want to go cold turkey, that a drug called varenicline, also known as Chantix, helped them to stop. Here to talk about the study and to bring us up to date on the state of tobacco use in general is Dr. Richard Hurt. He is the founding director of the Mayo Clinic Nicotine Dependence Center. Welcome to the program again, Dr. Hurt. Good morning. Now retired, though. Yeah, yeah. retired. Emeritus. Good for <laughs> you. Congratulations. But Living through retirement's a good thing. Yeah. So how goes the war on tobacco? I mean, I know you're still fighting it. You're not done. No. <clears throat> and we've, we've made a lot of progress in the last 50 years, but people tend to forget that it's still around. And we, there are still as many smokers today in the United States as there were 50 years ago at the time of the Surgeon General's report. There are? Yeah. That's, that's something but the percent-wise, percent it's much lower. Prevalence has gone down. Percentage has gone down, but that's because the population has increased in size. So there are still over 43 million smokers in the United States, which is basically the same number as there were 50 years ago. So the problem has not gone away. And they're, what, eight or nine bucks a pack now? Let's talk about quitting smoking because that's what we want to focus on. And if uh, I'm glad that I've never had to quit cold turkey because I can't even give up chocolate, so I don't know how I would give up something like nicotine. But uh, varenicline has been shown in a recent study to actually work. Well, it has been shown in, in several studies to work. And the first, the drug was released in 2006. And the initial studies were in the traditional way of setting a date to stop and trying to stop on that day uh, with a lead-in of about a week of the medication. So this new study is really different in that these people were not necessarily wanting to set a date to stop smoking, but they were willing to cut down. And they were, they were willing to reduce with the idea of stopping at some time in the future. And we call that reducing to quit. And so this study shows that they were able to do that in a fairly remarkable way. I mean, over 30% of them were able to stop smoking that were on the Brennan group compared to the placebo. Okay, so you started the Chantex before the actual stop date. Correct. And and so the, in the traditional way we've done this before, the cold turkey kind of way, we would set a date to stop, start the medication one week before, and then the person would try to stop on that day. Uh, this study is really different in that these people weren't 
particularly motivated to set a date to stop, but they were willing to reduce or cut down uh, with the idea over a period of about 12 weeks that we'd see what happened. And what happened was a very large percentage actually stopped smoking, which is really good news. It makes sense that if, uh, you know, you're a two-pack-a-day smoker, if you were able to cut back to one pack a day in advance of quitting, that it would be a lot easier. That makes sense to me. Well, the previous studies have been done comparing reduced to quit versus cold turkey, setting a date to stop have not shown a lot of difference. And this one really shows that, that that's a good methodology. So it's just another another arrow in the quiver, so to speak. Uh, a lot of people would set a date to stop and stop on that date with a run-in of about a week's worth of the medication. But we know now that with this drug that they can stay on the drug for a longer period of time and kind of stay with it, keep reducing, mm-hmm. and ultimately stop. Do you know how this drug works or why it works? Yeah, it's it's a it's a it's an agonist. It acts like nicotine, uh, but it also is a blocker. So it's a it's a only the only drug in its class. It acts directly on the nicotinic receptor in the brain, and so it helps to stimulate that receptor. Uh, at the same time, it blocks the receptor from any any nicotine that might be coming from another source. So if a person has blockage of those receptors and they smoke a cigarette, they don't get the reward. They don't get the reinforcement that they have gotten from smoking cigarettes before. And people say that to us all the time, that it just didn't feel as good as it used to. (laughs) Is that little reward part of the brain stronger in some people than in others? Is that why they have such a hard time to give up smoking? That's true. And and so these receptors in some smokers become upregulated. And what that means is that the there are more of them. The receptors increase in number over time. And therefore, when a person doesn't have that hit of nicotine from smoking a cigarette, then they have withdrawal symptoms. And those withdrawal symptoms can be very profound. So for people that are truly addicted to cigarette smoking and the nicotine from cigarettes, they have, their brain structures change. They have more uh, receptors. So if you had a twin sister, and she was a, a smoker and you're the non-smoker. And if we did a brain biopsy on both of you, took a little sample of your brain, she would have billions more of these receptors compared to you. And that's why this is so hard for some people. So you build those nicotine receptors as a smoker. That's one of the things that your body does. That's correct. And, and nicotine is really unique in biology. Most drugs, when you give them repeatedly in, into a receptor system, will downregulate the receptor because you don't need to have as many receptors because you're administering the drug. So nicotine is very unique in biology in that the receptors increase in number, and it takes months for them to decrease. Uh, and they go back to the they same do. number, uh, but it takes several months for that to happen. But, and there's a great big but, they do not forget. They do not forget what that reinforcement and the reward was like. So even though a person stops smoking for six or eight or ten months and they're put in a situation where they would usually have smoked, it can provoke the urge to smoke, or we call that cravings. It never goes away. Well, they do eventually, but it takes time. And, <laughs> and, and it's, uh, it's one of those things that people tell us all the time that this is really hard. And then when I'm in a situation where I've had some, some alcohol to drink or I've had a fight with my girlfriend or husband or wife or or somebody comes to visit that's not particularly pleasant, I get the urge to smoke. And so we tell people that's going to happen, but the urges and the cravings, though they can be very intense, are relatively short. They only last for a few minutes. When your mother-in-law comes to visit, you really need a cigarette and a, and a beer, probably. That's you that said that. I didn't say that. <laughs> so Chantix, it's uh, one of the best uh, things you have in your armamentarium for helping people stop smoking, but it does have some potential side effects, right? It does, and the main side effect to vernicline is is nausea. 
uh, it occurs fairly frequently, but it's usually relatively mild. And the second main side effect uh, is vivid dreams. And that happens with nicotine patches, too. And, and, and patients tell us that these dreams are vivid. They're technicolor dreams. They're not nightmares, but they're really vivid. Those are the two main side effects. Can you use varenicline with a nicotine patch? You can. It sounds counterintuitive uh, that because it's a it acts like nicotine, but it also blocks some of the nicotine. Mm-hmm. Uh, we've observed that people who uh, are on Brennan sometimes will have withdrawal symptoms that we have to use one of the nicotine products to help uh, reduce the withdrawal symptoms. Quickly tell us about Quick Plan Services. Uh, it's in the state of Minnesota. What is it, and is it only in Minnesota? Well, other states have it, but the the quit plan services in Minnesota are really uh, some of the best you'll see. It, it comes from Clearway, Minnesota. Remember back in 1998, there was a tobacco trial in, in, in Minnesota where the state won. And as a result of that, there was an organization called Impact that was formed, which now has, is called Clearway. And Clearway sponsors the quit plan services, which include uh, Internet services. They include telephone counseling. You can get free nicotine gum and free nicotine patches. And they're really state-of-the-art. Amazing program. And I saw you on the infomercial, so it's going to be showing in Minnesota soon. <laughs> Dr. Richard Hurt, thanks so much for being with us. Thank you. Dr. Richard Hurt is the founding director of the Mayo Nicotine Dependence Center. We're going to take a short break, and when we come back, the pros and cons of juicing. Is there such thing as getting too much juice in your diet? You're listening to Mayo Clinic Radio on the Mayo Clinic News Network. Welcome back to Mayo Clinic Radio. I'm Dr. Tom Shives. And I'm Tracy McRae. You know, judging from the sales of juice machines and the number of juice bars in some parts of this country, (laughs) juicing has apparently become a great way of getting important vitamins and minerals that are normally contained in fruits and vegetables. Or is it? Or is it? Yeah. Yeah. Here to help us sort it all out and the role the juice plays in good nutrition is Mayo Clinic registered dietitian Catherine Zaratsky. Welcome to the program, Kate. Good to have you with us. Nice to be here. Did you just run over from the juice bar? (laughs) I did not. I I did run over from our healthy living center. Well, you know, it used to be when we started talking about juicing in our news meeting, somebody said, well, isn't that, you know, using steroids to improve your... Athletic performance. I said, no, that's not what juicing is anymore. What is juicing if someone isn't familiar with it, that term? Well, and juicing is generally taking any variety of fruits and or vegetables and really extracting most of the liquid from them. Um, in most cases, it, re- it removes the pulp, but depending on your juicer, there are some now that you can, I, I guess, puree or let a little bit of pulp through get some of the pulp so are you still getting the vitamins and minerals the nutrition from the juice you're just not getting the fiber that through the pulp is it is that fair that that's probably a good description i think you know the idea of juicing is that there's probably a limited amount of pulp or fiber in it and i think that's that's the catch is that Mm. when we think about eating healthier eating more fruits and vegetables we really want the whole food Mm -hmm. and with juicing we're probably missing some of those components why has this become so popular? By the way, you used to bring that green goop can, uh, <laughs> glass of whatever you brought to the station. Are you referring to my green fruit and spinach smoothie That's that exactly I would bring? exactly what I was referring to. That's what to. I had for breakfast today, as a matter of fact. <laughs> but smoothies are different than juicing. I've tried juices, but I've never done juicing at home. Explain the difference, please. Sure. And with, with juices, it's just that. You're probably not eating the whole food. Whereas with a smoothie, it's probably a puree of 
many different fruits, vegetables, or anything else that you may want to add in to it. And it might be nut seeds. Some people put peanut butter, mm-hmm. different types of things in them. So a smoothie is better than juice. Well, with a smoothie, you're able to get the whole food, which is you know, really, a, I think, a benefit. Now, I think we could take it a step further. And there's arguments, I think, pros and cons, even for a smoothie that some people may argue for or against. But in, in terms of if you're comparing a juice to a smoothie, you're probably better off with a smoothie. Why has this become so popular? Is there some science behind it, or is it just another dietary fad? I think it's... M- more so a sign of our times and our culture that we're rushed and on the go and this is something that you can grab and take with you or it's just a simpler way maybe for some people to get a greater quantity of fruits and or vegetables into their diet whether it be a preference or whether it just be ease. You could say also you add the word bar to the thing. A juice bar. Who wouldn't (laughs) want to go there? That sounds awesome. How many fruits and vegetables should we be getting every day? Well, there's the old rule of five a day. And actually, there was a study that came out of Europe probably maybe a year, year and a half ago that actually looked at eating closer to seven Seven. or 11, Mm -hmm. even now they're saying. So the more, the better. Um, And I think that there's also been some confusion with the, I think, the scare around carbohydrates that people, Mm. I've heard a lot of people say, well, gosh, I can't eat a banana. There's too much sugar in that. In actuality, (laughs) when you're looking at whole fruits, again, it's that sugar that that's our our body's preferred source of fuel. And with when you're eating the whole fruit, you're actually getting the fiber and lots of other nutrients. So it's not that it's just sugar. It's a lot of other things. When you go to a juice bar, how do you know what's in the juice? Well, and that's just it. When you think about to make a glass of juice, to make even a four to six ounce glass of juice, it takes a a few pieces of fruit. And if, if you figure one piece of whole fruit probably has about 60 to 70 calories in it. If you're having three or four of those in a small amount, when you start thinking if I'm drinking a 12 or 16 ounce juice and it's mostly fruit, that's going to be quite a few calories. Now, a lot of juices do have vegetables in it, and I think that's a great way to control the calories if someone does choose to do it, because I think it keeps the the overall calorie count in check. Bringing you onto the show with us had to do with a lot of articles that I was seeing about the juicing is so bad and that people are gaining weight. They are having trouble with their teeth. They are getting diabetes because they're drinking too much juice. And so I thought it's kind of funny that something that we think is healthy for us, you know, drinking natural juice would be something that could be dangerous. Right. And I think it's, again, goes back to the context of when you are extracting just the juice, you're taking mostly, you're taking mostly the sugar, um, the liquid, and some of the vitamins and minerals. And you're missing that that pulp and that bulk that fills you up. up. And so you can drink a lot of calories without really feeling like you're drinking or consuming a lot. And you may not be getting some of the things that you really need, like fiber and, and some of the nutrients. Exactly, exactly. And there's and there's some arguments out there that when you start to pulverize or, you know, treat these fruits and vegetables in a different way other than whole that mm. you affect the nutrients. And indeed you do. But I think we do that across the, the board when we cook or chop a lot of things. Sure. And I think, you know, it's just that idea of balance with Mother Nature that we, you know, it probably is a good idea to eat foods in a lot of different forms. And I think when you just start juicing everything, sure. you are, you're, you're probably missing something. Myth or matter of fact, juice is filling, not fattening. Juice can be filling. As 
As a rule, when you have something that's liquid, even in a glass of water, because water has weight to it, you know, our, our stomach responds to that, that sense of weight. Um, is it filling over time? And I think that's the better question is when you have um, something without fiber, without a fat, or without protein, those are generally the nutrients that sustain us, say, for a period of time after a meal. So you may feel an immediate sense of, fullness from drinking the liquid, but an hour or two later, you might find yourself feeling hungry because you're not able to sustain that feeling of satiety. So if you went with the, and these juices are fabulous, you know, I have the blend that's like carrot, orange, jalapeno, cucumber. I mean, they really do taste good. They taste really good. Very expensive, but really good. I just was going to say that if you were to take all of those foods and maybe not blend them all up in a salad or something, but it would you'd be a lot more full if you ate each one of those individual things than just drinking the juice of those things. Exactly, because you're you're getting the you're getting the skin, you're getting the fiber, sure. the the pulp that's kind of inside those fruits and vegetables. And so that in itself is is going to slow down kind of the digestive process. And so your body's working a little bit. Not to mention when you're when you're juicing or just the, the sense of drinking versus chewing. Mm. And there's this has been studied a little bit. The idea they call it the chew factor that there is some satiety that we derive from just the action of chewing, and and that's very pleasurable for us. So what should we do if uh, you know? Because I want to be in trend. If juicing is the trend, I need to be there. What can we do to be healthier? How can we improve the trend of juicing? Well, and that's just it. If you really <laughs> like juice, or if you're finding that this is a convenient way for you to start getting more fruit and vegetables I like it if somebody diet. else buys it for me. So just remember that, Tom. Just bring me some juice. Well, we've made it probably. Do we have a juice bar here? In we'll find Clinic? one, yes. But the idea that, you know, juice is just part of a healthy diet. It doesn't necessarily make up a healthy diet. And so if you're having your juice, like anything else, it comes down to the how much. So looking at your portion of juice and what else are you consuming with it? Or are you adding else anything to it where you're adding some fat, some protein? And so you... Can, you don't have to necessarily drink a, a large quantity of juice, lots of calories, and then be looking for something else to eat later. So the bottom line, if you want to drink some of your foodstuffs or your nutrition, you're not a big fan of juicing. You like smoothies better. Correct. I would say a smoothie is probably a better option if you're looking for that on-the-go type of convenience. And and how often? Once well, a week? Every other day? Well, and I think it's a matter of the context of your diet. And I think I think in a reasonable amount, if you're keeping your, you know, a smoothie can be can probably could be a whole meal depending on what you put in it. But then it's not necessarily going to be all three meals of your day. It's going to be maybe one of your, maybe that's breakfast to go and then you're eating healthy meals at other parts of the Smoothie day. Smoothie at night, eggs in the morning. You're doing just the right <laughs> Something thing. Something like that. Thank you very much, Kate, for bringing us up to date on the latest in juicing and good nutrition. Thanks for having me today. Kate Zaratsky is a registered dietitian at Mayo Clinic. For more information, visit the Mayo Clinic News Network for today's podcasts and previously aired programs. Tweet us your health and medicine questions anytime at hashtag Mayo Clinic Radio. We may answer your question during an upcoming program.
You've been listening to Mayo Clinic Radio on the Mayo Clinic News Network. Our senior producer is Rich Geepman, our social media editor, Audrey Castletime. For Mayo Clinic Radio, I'm Dr. Tom Shives. And I'm Tracy McRae. Thanks for being with us. Any medical information conveyed during this program is not intended as a substitute for personal medical advice, and you should not take any action before consulting a healthcare professional. For more information, please go to our website, radio.mayoclinic.org. Please join us each week on this station for more of the medical information you want from Mayo Clinic specialists who know.